Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast with lead pastor Don Headley. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that he gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. I'm excited because we are in the second week of a series on second Peter. And so obviously I want you to grab the Word of God, head over to 2 Peter. We're actually in chapter 2 today. So whether it's paper form or on your device, go ahead and open it up because as I always say, I don't want you just to listen to what I have to say. I don't want you to hear me reading it. I want you to read it for yourself because there's something incredible that happens in that moment when we open the Word of God. We open ourselves up for what God would, would teach us, what He would tell us in our own lives, and our own hearts. And so I hope that you'll just join along with us today and read as we go through this check and the second chapter. Now, I want, to, I want you to know that I'm having fun with Peter because he's a little bit different in his writing than some of the other apostles. If, if you do any studying on the different apostles in their letters, what you're going to find out is all of them kind of have a passion. They have a thrust in their writing. If it's Paul, uh, you know that as you read through the letters that Paul wrote to the church, many times he's about faith. Like he's really, he's trying to teach people all about having stronger faith. If you read what John, I'm sorry, what James wrote, many times you're going to see that he's talking a lot of the time about works. Not works that lead to salvation, but works that come from salvation. The fact that we uh, are so thankful that Jesus came, that he loved us, and that he gave his life for us, the things that flow out of our lives. He's talking about not works, but the fruit that comes out of our lives. And then if you read John, the Apostle John, he really likes to talk about love. That a lot of his books are, are just focused on love. When you get to Peter, though, I think Peter is the, he's distinctly all about hope. I love his writings because he is all about hope. Now, that's what this book is all about. If you were here last week, you know that this book was written to a group of Christians who are in Asia Minor. They're in all these different churches. Uh, that's in modern-day Turkey today. And he's writing a letter trying to bring them hope because they are being oppressed. They're being persecuted by their Greek and Roman neighbors. And so he is really, through this letter, trying to lift them up, raise them up, give them hope, and push them forward. And today, what you're going to see is actually Actually, the second chapter is a very difficult chapter. It's got some of the strongest wording in it uh, in the entire Bible. And he's going to teach us today, first of all, about the danger of false teachers. He dives right into it. This entire chapter is about false teachers. So anywhere in this chapter, as we go through this today, if you're like, I wonder who he's talking about, just say false teachers and you'll be right on the money because that's exactly what this whole chapter is about. Now, I wonder as, as we jump into this, would we be able to know false teachings if we heard it? Like if I got up here on the platform this morning and I started giving you false teachings, would you be able to go, ah, wait a minute, I don't think so, Right? Or, nope, that's not what Scripture says. Would you be able to do that? I just want to give you a quick test. I don't want you to answer it out loud, okay? Because I don't want us to embarrass ourselves. And so here's what I want to ask you to do. Read through these next phrases, and you tell me which one comes from Scripture, all right? Is it this first one? This too shall pass. Or maybe it's money is the root of all evil. Or God helps those who help themselves. Uh, maybe it's all dogs go to heaven. You think that's it? 
Uh, what about uh, cleanliness is next to godliness? Uh, to thine own self be true. Which one comes from scripture? Again, don't answer it. Um, which one do you think? Because if you said none of them, you'd be correct. But yet, so often, I've had people quote these to me as though they came out of Scripture. Somehow we think that, that uh, you know, all dogs go to heaven and, and the money is the root of all evil. That, that, that comes out of Scripture. And this last one, to thine own self be true, that's not even Scripture. That's Shakespeare. That comes from Hamlet. And so, so often we think these things come from Scripture when, when they don't. That's why uh, Peter goes off in this second chapter about false teachers. He wants to make sure that we know the truth. The apostle Peter wants us to learn about the dangers of false teachers. And he dives right into it. Are you there? You ready to go? Okay, here we go. First three verses. He just dives right in. He says this, But there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who, brought, who bought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Isn't it amazing? It's kind of sad if you really read that passage right there. He says, even deny the master who bought them. Like you know, Jesus loved you, that he died for you, and you've rejected them. These, these false teachers have rejected Jesus who gave his life for them. He goes on in verse 2 to say, Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful, shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. And their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago, and their destruction will not be delayed. In the first three verses, he launches into this warning against false teachers. He's going to teach them, you need to be on guard, you need to be on the lookout for false teachers, and you need to understand what's true and what's false. And I think what he's doing here, in a way, is kind of repeating what he's been taught himself, because he was the apostle Peter. He learned from Jesus himself to be on guard against false teachers. Actually, Jesus, uh, this is what he said in Matthew chapter 24, uh, if you have a red letter Bible, this is in red letters. It says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders. So as to mislead, e uh, if possible, even the elect. You know what that means? Even you. You could be misled. Even those that, that claim to know truth, those who claim to be Christians will be misled uh, because they're going to come in. They're going to show signs and wonders. They're going to use smooth speech and they're going to be charismatic. And you're going to go, man, that sounds really good. I like that. And you're going to fall to false teachings if you're not careful, if you don't know what the truth is. Uh, he says, look, um, they're going to rise among you within the Christian ranks, in Christian groups, in Christian churches. You're going to have false teachers. And, and they're even going to call themselves Christians. And you're going to think that they're, they're believers, they're disciples of Jesus Christ, and they're going to tear the church up from the inside out. Uh, actually, we're told plainly in Acts chapter 20, so guard yourselves and God's people, feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. Um, we follow the biblical example here, and what we have is, in our leadership is a group of men, a group of elders is what they're called. And... Uh, Howard, the guy that was up here today that led us in a directed prayer. He's the chairman of our elder board. And, and the, these elders, you know what some of their role and responsibility is? It's to protect the church from false teachers. It's also to exhort and to admonish you as the church in sound doctrine. 
to make sure that they can teach it as well, that they're, when they sit down with you, that they're, they're able to teach you Scripture. Uh, another role that they have as elders is to judge doctrinal issues. They're holding my feet to the fire to make sure that when I get up here and teach, that I'm leading you in the direction that God leads us, not, not taking you to the left, not taking you to the right, but that I'm teaching Scripture. That's part of their role and responsibility as they're appointed as leaders. It goes on to say, I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Peter is saying, look, in in the early church, there's these false prophets, there's these false teachers, and they're misleading God's people, especially those who are new to the faith. They're they're leading them down the wrong path. And he says, if if you remember back to verse 1, 2 Peter I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, where we started this morning, he actually says, just as there will be false teachers among you. So he says, not only are there false teachers in this early Acts church, but there's also going to be false teachers 2,000 years later in our churches. And we have to be on guard against that. We have to know what truth is so that we can guard against those things. Why is Peter so passionate about false teachers? I mean, what's the danger about false teachers? Well, because they'll lead us astray. Because they're, they're going to lead us away from Jesus. They're going to lead us away from, from truth, what the true gospel is. So let me ask you, do you know what the true gospel is? Do you know what the gospel is? The fact that we are sinners, that we're, we're born in sin, and that there's no way that we can make ourselves right with God. And because of that, God loved us so much, he sent his son who lived a perfect life, who gave his life as a sacrifice on the cross to pay for our sins. Not only that, did he, uh, did he die for our sins, but he also rose again so that we could have eternal life with him. And then he offers that to us as, as sinners, as, as broken people. He offers that to us, and he just says, all you have to do is receive this. By faith, you're saved. That's the true gospel. Charles Spurgeon was once asked uh, if he could summarize the gospel. He said, in the simplest terms, would you please state the gospel? And this is what he said. Jesus Christ died for sinners who trust in him for salvation. I don't know if you can put it any simpler than that. See, this is the true gospel. And if we live by that, if we follow that, guess what comes out of that? Forgiveness of sins, salvation, and eternal life. But anything contrary to that, something that that teaches something against that, will lead us to eternal devastation. That's why false teachers are so damaging to a church, to a body, to especially young Christians. We have to make sure that we're teaching truth here. Peter wants to teach us in this, this whole passage the danger of false teachers, but he also wants to show us the demise of false teachers as well. And then starting in verse 4, he launches into, and this can be kind of confusing sometimes, but I want to take it piece by piece. He launches into a whole bunch of examples that we're going to find in the Old Testament. And some of them are, are you might think are obscure, but in this first century, when he was writing this, uh, they, would have, they would have learned these. They, they would have known them. And as soon as they read it, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. And so let's take a look at all these examples. In verse 4, it says, For God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held until the day of judgment. 
Now, for us, that sounds kind of like out there, right? But really, what he's referencing is a story about angels who looked down on earth, who saw the women of mankind and then thought they were beautiful, and so they came down, they had sex with them. If you don't believe me, you can read this for yourself. It's Genesis chapter 6, first seven verses. And, and they had sex with them, and they created something called Nephilim. It was a mix between angels and men. Now, um, before I go any further, I just want to remind you, some of you know this already, but if you have questions during this message, we've got this Ask Anything number up here. And the reason we put that up there is as we go through this and you have questions, you can text those questions in and we'll answer your questions. The pastors will respond. Now, I'm telling you this because I know that when you go to Genesis chapter 6 and you begin to read this, you're going to have some serious questions and we don't have time to go into all of that today. So I want you to make sure that you send that text there and Pastor Mike will respond to you. Okay? So, uh, but... We just want to make sure that we're answering your questions. We don't want this to be a stumbling block. But this is what Peter is referencing. He says, look, if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, what makes you think that he's going to spare you if you sin against God, if you turn your back on God? He goes on in verse 5 to quote another one. He says, and God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Now, if you don't know what he's referencing here, it comes out of Genesis chapter 6 through 8, and he's talking about Noah and the ark. Uh, See, you go clear back to the world before the flood, and we're told that uh, there was a vast number of people that they'd populated the world, but they had become wicked and evil. And, And many scholars believe that this was a very advanced group of people, like maybe even more advanced than we are. And Because of that, they'd turned their backs on God and they'd walked away. And wickedness had set in. Sexual depravity had set in. And it it was sad when you read this passage because it says that the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he said that everything that they thought and imagined was consistently and totally evil. Like there was no God. They'd completely rejected God. But yet, even in the midst of this culture... It says that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. He was a righteous man. And so God warned him and said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wipe out the the people of the earth, and I'm going to start over. I want to make a covenant with you, and I'm going to start over with you, and I want you to start building an ark. And so he starts that, and we estimate it's about 120 years it takes him to do this. And the whole time he's preaching, Noah, why why are you building an ark? Well, because God has pronounced judgment. And you need to turn from your sin and you need to follow God. You need to turn your hearts back to God. 120 years of preaching and not one convert. How do you like that? But God did exactly what he promised. He put him on the ark. He flooded the world. He, he wiped out mankind. And he started over with Noah. Noah uh, was righteous and therefore he was, he was saved. God brought justice against the world because of its sin. But he redeemed Noah because he looked to God. It goes on in verse 6. It says... Later, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. Again, another Old Testament reference. He's referencing clear back to Genesis chapter 18 and 19 where we have these two cities, massive cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. But in the midst of these cities, who they had everything that they would ever need. They had, again, turned from God. 
They become so wicked. And we're told stories of their sexual immorality. And it's actually a really, really sad story. If you go and read this one, you're probably going to have questions. Because in the midst of this story, God sends two angels to Lot in Sodom. And he shows up. And these two angels come into Lot's house, and guess what happens? The men uh, of Sodom come, and they bang on the door, and they're like, hey, those two dudes that just checked in, send them out because we want to have sex with them. That's how jacked up this is. You didn't think that was in Scripture, did you? It's amazing when you read this passage. And so these angels, they bring Lot and his family out to rescue them, and God rains down brimstone and fire from heaven, and he wipes Sodom and Gomorrah off the face of the earth. So much so, get this, that even today, we have archaeologists trying to find Sodom and Gomorrah. They're just trying to figure out where it's at. We know it was off the Dead Sea somewhere, but they, they speculate, but they, they don't know for sure. Because God wiped it off of the face of the earth so clean that they're having trouble even figuring out where they were located at. If you go to the shores of the Dead Sea and you stand there and you look around, you will not see a Sodom or Gomorrah anywhere. Um, then, after all these Old Testament examples, we get to a key verse. There's two of them in this passage, I believe. The first one comes in verse 9. Take a look at what it says. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. Some of you, maybe this is why you're here today, because you needed to hear this verse. I, I memorized this verse when I was a young man. It was taught to me, and I had to memorize it. I memorized it in a different translation, and I memorized it this way. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. That's the way I heard it. That's the way I memorized it. And what I thought when I was a young man was, oh, that means that if I, if I say that I'm a Christian, God's going to rescue me from everything. And I found out that's not true. It actually says that God knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, or the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, uh, meaning that God knows how to do it. But do you see the phrase that's used there for you and for me? It says godly people. Do you know what that implies? People who are godly, people who are pursuing the things of God, the desires and the will of God. When we pursue those things, God walks with us and he takes us through whatever trials are in front of us. And it doesn't say that we're going to duck the trial, right? You know that. Jesus came and said, look, uh, in this life, there will be trials. You're going to go through them. He didn't promise we wouldn't have trouble. He just said, look, when there is trouble, I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to take you through it. The Lord knows who the true believers are, and he's able to deliver his people when they're tested with unbelief or disobedience or immoral lives, and, and he's able to deliver them in his own way. First uh, Corinthians 10 says it this way, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. God doesn't take us away from trials, away from temptation, away from tribulation. He just simply walks us through them. Now, verse 9, I love. It says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, um, which we need, right? It's a story of God's redemption, but that's not where it stops. Verse 9 continues. It finishes with this. Maybe you'll remember this. Um, it says, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. Now, maybe you're one of those that you struggle because you're like, God, what is going on? Like, it seems like I'm trying to live this life right and everything seems to go wrong. And the people that are doing evil, they seem to be the ones getting ahead. They're the ones getting the promotion. They're the ones getting the raise. What's the deal with that? You need to memorize this verse. Because it says, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. 
See, this is not just a verse about God's redemption, but it's a, God, it's a verse about God's justice as well. We serve a God who is great enough, big enough, loving enough to save us, to redeem us. But we have a God who is just enough to make sure justice is served as well. Um, Peter teaches us about the danger of false teachers, about the demise of false teachers, but he also wants to teach us about the decor of false teachers as well, the furnishings, the the things that, that show on the outside so that we can identify these false teachers. He begins to describe who they are and what they look like in verse 10. It says, He is especially hard on those who follow their own twisted sexual desire and who despise authority. These people are proud and arrogant, daring even to scoff at supernatural beings without so much as trembling. But the angels, who are far greater in power and strength, do not dare to bring from the Lord a charge of blasphemy against those supernatural beings. Uh, Again, we're told uh, these people think that they're so high and so great and so slick that they can, they can talk badly about God himself. They can use his name in vain. They can blasphemy, and they don't worry about it. They don't hesitate. Uh, this literal translation would say, they do not tremble when they blaspheme glories. Like they, they don't care about God. They've turned their back on it. They claim that God doesn't exist. They don't have any problems. And yet, it says the angels who are far greater in power and strength, they wouldn't dare do something like that. They think that they are so smart. And then take a look at their conduct as it continues in verse 12 and 13. Their destruction is their reward for the harm they have done. They love to indulge in evil pleasures in broad daylight. They're a disgrace and a stain among you. They delight in deception even as they eat with you in your fellowship meals. Um, did I skip 12? Somebody? Yes, I did. Let me go back to that because there's something I want to show you in this. These false teachers, here we are. These false teachers are like unthinking animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. They scoff at things they do not understand and like animals, they will be destroyed. Uh, when I read this verse, uh, I think of like my trips to the zoo or to SeaWorld, right? Right? They've got a monkey, or they've got a dolphin, or orca, or a bird up there, and they've got them performing for you, and, and the person who's, who's uh, kind of orchestrating this whole thing, or the, the lady with the microphone, she's telling you about how wise and intelligent these animals are, and I love that, because I'm always sitting there thinking this, you caught them, like they're, they're still in a cage, or they're in a tank, they can't be that smart, Right? Now, they might be smart compared to other things, but they're definitely not smart, not, not as smart as you're making them out to be. And see, I think that's kind of what Peter's talking about here. He's like, these people think they're so intelligent. They, they speak with smooth talk. They're spreading lies, false doctrine, and they think everybody believes them. They think that they, like the ground they walk on, you worship. Why? Because they're charismatic? Because they look right? They speak right, and yet Peter says they're no better than an animal that's going to be caught and destroyed. They might think they're smart, but they're not that smart. Um, Going back to 13, it says their destruction is their reward for the harm they have done. They love to indulge in evil pleasures in broad daylight. They are a disgrace and a stain among you. They delight in deception even as they eat with you in your fellowship mills. They, They pretend to be part of the group. 
They'll break bread with us. They'll have communion. They'll call themselves a Christian, but yet they're here to tear it apart from the inside out with false doctrine. It goes on in 14 to say, they commit adultery with their eyes and their desire for sin is never satisfied. They lure unstable people into sin and they are well-trained in greed. They live under God's grace. Now, this word here, lure, that's translated into word, uh, lure in our English language, I want you to grab that, stick it in your pocket. Okay, hang on to it. We're going to pull it out later, but just hang on to that right now. They lure unstable people into sin. They have wandered off the right road and followed the, fo- uh, the footsteps of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved to earn money by doing wrong. But Balaam was stopped from his mad course when his donkey rebuked him with a human voice. Now, um, again, he's drawing back to an Old Testament story. Numbers chapter 22 talks about Balak, and Balak is a, a foreign king, and, and he calls upon Balaam, who is a godly man. He's a prophet, and he says, look, the Israelites have moved into our country. I know what they've done to the other nations. I fear them, and I don't know if there's anything I can do, but I want you to come as, as a man of God. I want you to come. I want you to give us a blessing, and I want you to curse the nation of Israel. And God says, mm, not going to happen. Because the Israelites, that's my people. But Balaam gets on his donkey and he begins to ride to go see Balak. And on the way, God sends an angel to stand in the path. And the angel draws a sword and the donkey sees the angel, but Balaam doesn't. The donkey begins to run through a field and and he beats this donkey with a stick gets him back on the path. And as he's going, it's like a a canyon or or something's got walls and he sees the angel again. So the donkey begins to press against the wall and crushes his leg. And so he begins to beat the donkey again. Pretty soon the donkey looks up, sees the angel again, and he just lays down. And Balaam beats this donkey again. And God gives the donkey the ability to speak. And the donkey looks over his shoulder, I imagine, just goes, why'd you been beating me these three times? What's up with this, right? Um, Can you imagine if your donkey started talking to you? Um, In the morning, I'm making waffles, right? Um, Some of you will get that reference. But anyway, uh, he gives the donkey the ability to speak. And then finally, he opens up Balaam's eyes and he can see the angel. And you know, in that moment, Balaam realizes this donkey is smarter than I am when it comes to the things of God, right? At least following God. See, what Peter's doing here is he's saying, look, if God can use a donkey, a talking donkey, to bring Balaam back, to put him back on the right path, when you get off track, what could God use for you? He can use anything, right? He can use anything. It goes on in verse 17. These people are as useless, talking about these false teachers, are as useless as dried up springs or as mists, uh, mists blown away by the wind. They are doomed to blackest darkness. To blackest darkness. Now that might not sound bad, but this is the word that Peter's using for hell, for eternal damnation, for eternal separation from God. Why? Because false teachers teach darkness because there is no light in them. And their just reward is eternal darkness. It's it's eternal separation from God. Uh, John Calvin was writing about this, and this is the way he put it. He said, in place of the momentary darkness which they now cast... There is prepared for them a much thicker and eternal one. This is their reward for being a false teacher, for misleading people, for leading God's people away from him. Verse 18. They brag about themselves with empty, foolish boasting, 
with an appeal to twisted sexual desires, they lure back into sin those who have barely escaped from a lifestyle of deception. Now, see the word there, lure again? The reason I had you uh, put that one in your pocket, you can pull that out now, right? He uses this word twice, and we translate it in the English language as lure, but out of the Greek, this is actually, if you wanted a direct translation, it would say, don't take the bait. Like, they're taking the bait, and why I love this and why I think it's so fascinating is because if you think about who's writing this, right? It's the Apostle Peter. Let me ask you a question. What did Peter do before Jesus called him into the ministry? Yeah, he's a fisherman. Fisherman. He's using something he's familiar with. And, and he's saying, look, beware of these false teachers because what they're going to do is they're going to put the bait out there. Don't take the bait. Uh, he says, your most dangerous deceivers are the ones that come to you with tasty bait and a concealed hook. Don't take the bait. I love this about Peter. Um, our second key verse comes up in verse 19. First one, verse 9. Second one, verse 19. And it says this. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin and corruption. For you are a slave to whatever controls you. Whatever consumes your mind controls your life. You're a slave to those things. And you might be thinking, I'm not a slave to nothing, man. Like, I do whatever I want to do. And the problem with that, let me give you the truth. You ready for it? Is whatever you give yourself to, you become a slave to. Even if it's just your own desires, you become a slave to it. And the problem with that is that Jesus paid too high of a price for you to be a slave to something else. Jesus paid a price so that you would be free. Galatians chapter 5 says, so Christ has truly set us free. He's truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. See, false teachers will lead you back into slavery. Don't fall for that. Don't take the bait. Stay free. Jesus has already paid for that for you. Uh, Jesus said in, in John chapter 8, he said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And yet Jesus went to the cross and paid the price so that we could be forgiven of those sins. Now, don't be a, don't be a slave to those sins. Jesus has already given you your freedom. Uh, let's wrap this entire chapter up. Last three verses. It says, and when people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they are worse off than before. It would be better if they had never known the way to righteousness than to know it and then reject the command they were given to live a holy life. They prove the truth of this proverb. A dog returns to its vomit and another says a washed pig returns to the mud. He's quoting uh, Proverbs chapter 26 here. And, and what he's saying is, look, Pete, he's talking about these people who have heard the truth. They've heard the gospel. And yet they walk away from it. They reject it. They go back to their sinful life. And he says it's worse for them because they've rejected the only way out of their sin, the only path to salvation. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except f through me. And yet in the sin, they hear that and they go, eh, I'll try it a different route. And they go a different direction. He says it's worse off. It's like they're stuck in quicksand and you threw them a rope to get them out. And they're like, nah, I'll figure it out on my own. I got this. And they reject the only way out, their only means of salvation. So 22 verses. What's the lesson for us right here in 2021? What are we supposed to learn out of this? What, what do we take from this passage? Well, I think Paul's instruction to us today would be, number one, that we have to guard against false teachings. We have to be on guard 
And sometimes it's impossible not to be exposed to evil, right? Because it's all around us. But we have to learn how to be on guard against false teachings, against false doctrine. And the way to do that is through the knowledge of Scripture, to screen everything that we see and hear through Scripture so that we can recognize a lie. We can recognize false teachings when we hear it. So obviously, number two, he would say we have to be in the Word of God. We have to subject ourselves to the authority of the Word of God. Let me, let me ask, do you think that you could spot false teachings? Like if I got up here today and I begin to teach false doctrine, do you think you could spot it? See, I hope so. I hope so. The best shield uh, against false teachings is a personal knowledge of the Word of God. To stay in the Word of God. To study truth so that you can identify false teachings when you hear it. Uh, let me ask you, how much time do you spend... Um, in the newspaper? How much time do you spend reading a book or how much time do you spend watching Netflix in comparison to how much time you spend in the Bible? So you really want to be on guard against false teachings? You got to spend some time in the Word. You might say, well, I don't have enough time. Um, Honestly, if it's a priority, you'll make time, even in the midst of a busy schedule, to meditate on, to memorize Scripture, to memorize truth. Because if we don't do that, here's what happens. We get cold in our spiritual life, we become numb. And in that moment, we become susceptible to false teachings. And I think that's Peter's warning for us today in chapter two. May we be a church that is full of the best students of scripture. May we spend time in the word of God, getting to know the word and getting to know God so that when false teachers and false doctrines show up, that we would be able to identify it and not be led away from this Jesus that we say that we love and we serve. Can I pray for that for all of us? Would you join me in that? Heavenly Father, we come to you right now just as your people. God, we, we have a love and a passion for you, and we want to follow you. But Lord, so often uh, with the world around us and all the information that's coming at us, sometimes we get, we, we're led away. And God, I pray that instead of being consumed by all that, the news reports and the uh, you know, social postings, that we would focus on your word, that we would seek truth from the one who is true, you. And God, help us to be able to identify through the filter of your word, those lies that are being fed to us. And God, I pray that that would just increase our passion for you. May we find ourselves in this place, in this unstable world, um, with strong foothold, because we know your word and we know you. Not shaken by every news report, not shaken by every claim, but we know that we're secure in you and we know lies because we know the truth. God, we give all these things to you. We just ask that everything that we do and say brings glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people agreed and said,